Let's let's catch the chase here, Tim. In 1977. Yeah. What was the archetypal, unfashionable, cut-out bin, bargain bin record? I'm, again, I'm not quite sure because if you think about the albums that were big in the progressive field during this Well, not year, just progressive, not just progressive. Were there albums yeah. from the sort of Laurel Canyon scene that were considered, you know, by 1977 well, were considered bargain enough, bin favourites? I don't think, you know, in 77, I still think things like... You know, yes, Genesis, Floyd were selling fantastically and were not reaching those bargain bins. It was probably at that point the likes of the Carpenters. It was more the kind of safe MOR of the late 60s, early 70s, Neil Diamond, Carpenters. I don't know. I remember seeing quite a lot of copies of Better By Far by Caravan in the in the bargain bins at the time. Gentle Giants and Missing Peace. Uh, Crosby, Stills, Nash, oh, mid-70s yeah, albums. Yeah. Okay. Crosby, um, Nash, Graham certainly. Nash and Steve Stills solo records. Uh, Through Fair Gap, or I think that was one of the Stephen Stills albums from the period. Um, those ones I remember seeing a lot in, in, in bargain bins around that well, time. Well, I think they suddenly, I think, you know, as much as anything else, I think the American MOR scene suddenly seemed yes. incredibly outside of... The like guys. Although the exception to that, of course, was was Neil Young, who had American Stars and Bars this year, which was a really ragged album, but very beautiful and very creative. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because Neil Young kind of stayed relevant by almost anticipating the back to basics, non musicianship, outsider element of a lot of punk rock, whereas his buddies, yeah. Crosby, Nash and Stills sort of moved ever further towards the kind of muso, slick, L.A., West Coast sound, didn't they? So Neil, whether through design or, or luck, with albums like Tonight's the Night, kind of almost predated or, or predicted the back to basics expression. Of course, he was, you know, at the time he was, he paid the price for that, didn't he? His so-called mm. Back to the Ditch trilogy um, the On the Beach Tonight's The Night Zuma. I think those are the three records he considers in that. No, Time Fades Away. Mm. They're very ragged, aren't they? And very yeah. punky. Uh, out of tune, out of time. Yes. Um, and I think that, in a sense, helped him to survive. It's ironic. It was in the 80s that he seemed to lose his way. Yes. But in the 70s, he'd kind of stayed relevant by almost being punk before punk was a thing. Well, I was thinking about this, that... What you know, this idea of the um, is it a prog, is it a punk thing? That the prog bands that to a certain extent integrated well sonically with that era. Let's think of Van Gogh Generator, Pink Floyd, Hawkwind, you know, artists from another generation who actually sounded really quite natural and at home in 77. I think it was a combination of those artists like Neil Young, and Neil Young, as you just pointed out, was another. On one level, anticipating what was happening or accidentally just reflecting what was around them. But the second level is that those were the bands that perhaps had more influence on the upcoming new wave and punk bands. That actually Van de Graaff always had that vicious atonal quality. Pink Floyd were in some ways always one of the least musical of the progressive well you have bands. to i think you have to be careful when you say when you say least musical actually they're one of the most musical in the sense that their melodies and their attention to texture and production yeah was, or was, the the least technical the yes, least showy yes, yes. the least showy that basically elements of say 
what Pink Floyd, Van de Graaff generator Hawkwind were doing in 72, 73 were still being reflected in the music of the new wave artists and the punk artists. So, you know, I'm sure Stranglers, Wire, as I said before, and certainly when it comes to the likes of Magazine, Teardrop Explodes, those were the artists that, to a certain extent, they would still be drawing from and not embarrassed to be drawing from, whereas the more florid, technically complex music of ELP, yes, seemed from a totally different generation, a totally different mindset. I think it's, so it's that combination, really, that, you know, Pink Floyd, Hawkwind, Van de Graaff, Neil Young, on one level, they were the artists that the new bands were drawing from. On another level, they did move with the zeitgeist. Yes, I mean, though those bands, again, just really more by luck than judgment, but they sounded more relevant in 1977 in a punk climate because actually they'd always had a simplicity or, or in the case of Hawkwind, a kind of non-musician outsider yeah. kind of vibe to what they did. They were not great musicians. They didn't want to be great musicians. Let's just say the influence of something like Mahavishnu Orchestra and Return to Forever was completely absent in bands like Pink Floyd, Van de Graaff, Generator and Hawkwind, whereas it was very apparent in bands like Yes!, um, the the complex, the shredding, the the jazz kind of uh, tonalities, uh, harmonic inversions of jazz were all over those kind of bands, but they're completely absent, you know. And you know, let's talk about the Ham, mm-hmm. one of our favourites. The on Ham, the Ham. Every every year we have to talk about the Ham because the Ham was very prolific throughout this whole period. Again, another year the Ham made two records, one with Van der Graaff Generator, the Quiet Zone, the Pleasure Dome, which was an album which was made with a new stripped down um although ironically there were more people in the band but there was something about the sound that was more in keeping with punk and new wave it was streamlined there was less of the extended compositions there was none of the keyboard elements because there was no keyboard player suddenly in the band except for the ham himself Mm -hmm. surely more by luck than judgment this was an album that just seemed to reflect the the coming of punk rock wasn't it yeah but i think he already had those elements in his sound you know nadia has got aspects of true it for yeah. Sure, oh, yeah oh yeah absolutely and it's a prototype punk album if ever there was one very much so and so i think that it was all always a part of his vocabulary and although van der graaff's music and hamill's music can be quite knotty it's very instinctive you know, it's not a kind of showboating compositional knottiness. Mm. There's something where it is pure pummeling excess. You know, to me, when I hear some of that music, there's a kind of hammer horror grand guignol, whatever. There's there's an aspect that they're almost amusing themselves while creating this horror, which I think a lot of punk was to a certain extent. It was like, how fast can we get? How ugly can we get? Mm. How extreme, exactly. And I think that was always in Hamill and and, um, Van de Graaff's DNA, which is another reason why I think that, you know, that punk generation didn't drop them and drew some inspiration from them. And and I can hear aspects of Van de Graaff in the early Stranglers as well. And I think it's, you know, I think Hamill did play with the Stranglers live as well during that period. There was more of a crossover than we, we think latterly. But going back to something you were saying earlier, that, while on one level, the return to forever, that aspect, weather report, that level of sophistication 
was absent completely from the British punk. In terms of charts, in terms of success, some of those artists were having their biggest success. You know, Weather Report's biggest album was from this era, Heavy Weather, 77. Steely Dan's Asia was as close as they came to very complex harmonic inversions, jazz fusion music in a way. So on one level, while this music was the epitome of what one shouldn't be doing, it was also in its commercial apotheosis, if well, I can we, use we, that word. So, I mean, we have talked about that on, on, on the podcast before, haven't we? Actually, if you look at what, was, what were the biggest records during the so-called year zero punk, post-punk era, they are Breakfast in America, The War of the Worlds, yeah. Bat Out of Hell, Rumours. Um, they're not really signifying a new a new era for music at all um that took time i think to filter through so yes i mean that's certainly true commercially the the biggest record buying demographic was still the squares for want of a better word yeah yeah the people who probably only bought one or two records a year i mean i remember my mum and dad buying breakfast in america you Mm. know um saturday night fever soundtrack my mum and dad were not going out and buying Damned, Damned, Damned or, you know, or, or New Boots and Panties by Ian Jury. They, they, you know, of course they weren't. That was that mm. was aimed. Perhaps that's it. You know, perhaps it was because the demographic that, that those records appealed to were more of a singles. But then, as we said, they weren't they weren't really making many inroads into the singles chart either, were they, those artists? So not at that point, not at that point. No. So I think it was it, 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 it is something that history tries to tell us at least was much more seismic than it actually was at the time it was happening in an underground way it was happening i suppose in school playgrounds and it was it was going to be something that would have a massive impact on perhaps the 80s generation of musicians people like roland orzabel would have grown up you know listening as much to um you know genesis albums as well as uh, you know, punk rock records. Yeah. And suddenly you hear those, the influences of those two kind of, you know, and us included, I suppose, in that too. To you know, extent, we, yeah. we We grew up, we became of age as people that were inspired to be musicians ourselves during this very confuse, confusing, in a good way, time, didn't we? Well, it was an exciting period. And I think it comes back to, again, the beginning of the show, that almost all the genres to a certain extent were operating at their peak you know so for me an album like going for the one by yes is arguably one of their greatest albums and it was a huge commercial success and going back to the great billy joel you know his album from this year the stranger it's really ambitious mor with some brilliant singles you know this is a gifted songwriter with a great sense of production is there a sense that the very the very first volley if I can use that word, of of punk records just weren't interesting enough for someone like you and me to an extent, although I was, yeah. I was very young at the time, just weren't interesting enough from a production or a sort of musical vocabulary, sort of, you know, in a, in a sense of the musical vocabulary, just weren't interesting enough to appeal to you who'd already started buying... 10cc and wings and and those kind of records and me who'd started off listening in my house with my parents listening to things like dark side of the moon i mean i tell this story interesting interesting to me at least in my book 
I tell this story about how the first time I ever heard the Beatles, mm. I didn't get it because I'd my my mum and dad didn't like the Beatles. They didn't own any Beatles records. I didn't hear the Beatles. What I heard growing up in my house was Tubular Bells, Dark Side of the Moon, Saturday Night Fever, Donna Summer, early Donna Summer, Giorgio Moroder records. So the first time I heard the Beatles is when a kid at my school lent me the Red Album. Mm. And I thought it was the twiest, <laughs> most uninteresting. It was so disappointing. Okay, it would have, might have been different if he'd lent me the Blue Album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But the Red Album, famously, for those of you who don't know, I'm sure everyone knows this, but the Red Album covers the sort of 63 to 66 period. To me... My God, I was into things like I want to hold your hand and she loves you. I'm thinking, this is just, what the fuck is this shit? You know, this doesn't. And maybe there was an element of punk sounding that way to us. This this first wave of punk. Yeah. Stranglers and perhaps Wire exclude, although I didn't hear Wire at the time because they just weren't commercially successful mm. enough to, to be on my radar. But the bands that were, the Clashes, the Dams, the Jams, the Sex Pistols, to people like you and I who'd, who'd kind of grown up hearing these kind of sophisticated productions with the 10cc or Pink Floyd or yeah. Tubular Bells, just wasn't interesting enough? Uh, yeah, I think there's, there's an element of that. You know, my parents, say, weird enough, they were quite young, but they had very old-fashioned tastes. So I was kind of brought up with the likes of Sinatra, you know, the crooners. Mm. But equally, they did have Carpenters albums. So we had Carpenters. And we we also, had... Yeah. There were certain ubiquitous albums in houses, so we did have the Simon Garfunkel Greatest Hits and we had the Beatles Red and Blue. And it was the Blue album that as a kid, I thought, this is magical. You know, I adored that record. And I think, you know, yes, there's an aspect of truth. It's that for me, it got interesting, 78, 79, 80. And maybe it was the bands being truer to themselves or what have you, all the productions and the era becoming more sophisticated. But that's when I got really excited by a lot of the new artists that had emerged out of punk. But yeah, that first... And, you know, I would still probably go for um, Just The Way You Are over Anarchy in the UK. Well, I would too, but I wouldn't go for it over, say, um, Drums and Wires or 154. Exactly. Kilimanjaro uh, or Raven. Yeah, so, yeah. so I think there's a sense that for us, this, this is what I mean by this first volley of albums, this sort of first sort of um, heralding of this new generation and this new approach and this new aesthetic to making music was too back to basics. But very, very soon, in fact, we've, we've, we've covered 78, yeah. haven't we? We did 78, I think. There were so many records that came out of that kind of, um, that new approach to making music that we completely fell in love with. But they are the records that come from, yeah. I mean, very quickly. But yes, um, you know, if you think of, say, The Clash, Sex Pistols, it's almost like the edifice has been absolutely shattered, pummeled, and then you're building the bricks up again in really interesting ways. And of course, you know, the direct legacy of that punk sound, I don't think would have interested either of us because you had the Oi movement, the sort of 79, 80, mm. 81 Oi bands who were the most direct, reductive, reductive yeah. descendants yeah. of that, yeah. who, of course, didn't ever figure on my radar. No. Um, but then the bands that came out in 78, 79, bands like Magazine, um, obviously we, we love that music. So there's a sense that very quickly, even the musicians that were making punk and sh shall we say, kind of using it in a way as, as an opportunity to get a foothold in the industry that suddenly became obsessed with 
punk and all these record labels signing yeah. punk, you know, very quickly developed out of that kind of reductive approach and became the bands that well, that's we, it. That, we adore. why it was exciting as a period, because it was a kind of a knocking down of structures and then exciting new structures being built in their wake. And I suppose ultimately what punk com- comes down to, and again, this is the learn three chords, that's actually, mm. that's enough. Now, so this idea that you had to be brilliant muso musicians like you would hear in Yes or Gentle Giant. Actually, no, you can make mu- music is about ideas. It's not about technique or, yeah. it, or it can be about ideas. It doesn't have to be about technique. And of course, that's something that both you and I completely adhere to, don't we? I mean, I still very consider myself so. very yeah, much yeah. a non-musician. I love working with great musicians, but my, I myself am a non-musician. So in that respect, isn't... Wouldn't you look at someone like Eno as the grandfather of this this whole kind of idea of the non-musician, this conceptualist? Yes. And, and of course, music. what's interesting there is that, you know, we're talking about artists that captured the zeitgeist while not being a part of it. Of course, Bowie and Eno in 77, you know, we're talking the heroes. So let, let's talk about that. Yeah, because because we have a category here. There's new wave, there's old wave, and there's David Bowie and chums. And there's a sense that they've just ridden this whole, they just kind of rode through the whole 70s, always managing somehow to be part of the zeitgeist, didn't they? Yeah. Again, you wonder how much of that was just luck and how much of it was just judgment. But what a year for the Bowser. Fantastic. The Bowser, together with his buddy, Brian... I mean, it still blows my mind that Low and Heroes came out within a few months of each other. I mean, that's just probably still my two favourite Bowie records. But what's brilliant about them is that, again, a bit like Animals, they managed to capture that kind of grimy, depressive aura. And I know he didn't record it in Britain, but it captures brilliantly that grimy, depressive aura of late 70s Britain. And yet it's nothing like, you know, this is somebody who was an acknowledged influence on some of the punks, ditto Eno. And rather than do some kind of two-bit imitation of it or jump in on it, they do something entirely different, which, of course, becomes hugely influential by the late 70s, early 80s. It defines the musical era. And I rather like that, that, you know, they've suddenly got their followers. They are the movement. And they ignore it. Yeah. You know, you know that year, of course, not only is he working with Bowie, he's working with Cluster. Yeah. And producing absolutely gorgeous pastoral albums. And of course, he's inventing ambient around this period as well, which is the antithesis of punk. Well, let me stop you there to take issue. He's not inventing ambient. He's inventing he's, ambient. He's not. He's defining Brian Eno is inventing it. <laughs> no. He's, he's Brian Eno. We're not. He's invented it. Let's just get one thing straight. <laughs> Brian Eno did not invent ambient music. He defined it. He came up with the term ambient music. I thought he invented music. As we both know, Tim, ambient music existed for many, many years before. I mean, I still, I still say for me, Tangerine Dream Zeit from 1972 is the proto-ambient Hippies, record. man! So anyway, um, no, I mean, Brian, you know, the great conceptualist, you know, uh, he released a great album this year, Before and After Science. Bowie at the same time was producing Iggy, Lust for Life, who mm. you could say Iggy Pop, one of the grandfathers of the whole yeah, yeah. punk aesthetic, isn't it, and the punk approach. But again, an artist that had not sold anything really until that point. It's almost like punk 
legitimizes a lot of these artists or at least gives them an, I mean Velvet Underground I mean Velvet yeah. Underground probably I mean I'm again I don't know this for sure but I'm guessing between 1967 and 1977 no one talked about the Velvet Underground I think they were talked about a little more because I've got a whole collection of sort of music magazines from the early 70s and Lou Reed and the Velvets are there oh, they're okay. always in the background they're not in the foreground, but they are spoken of fairly frequently. But punk would have elevated them, it presumably. Ele- yes. But by Stooges, yeah. 1979, 1981... They're like the godhead, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and similarly with the Stooges. Very Iggy, much so, yeah. Who, who would have struggled until that point. Apart from Bowie's sort of patronage, I think Velvet Underground would have probably been completely unknown to most people. I'm guessing again here, you, as you say, you may know no know, know different know, know differently, but certainly punk suddenly these groups, these artists were very much in vogue, weren't they? Yeah. And the genius of Bowie, of course, is to be able to just be there at the right place at the right time, such that he doesn't seem like quite the contrary. He doesn't seem like someone jumping on the bandwagon. Mm. He seems like someone who's actually predicted. Yeah. Uh, even though, I mean, if you listen to a record like Low, I mean, let's face it, Side Two is is anti-punk, isn't it? It's it's very cl- much so. it's, it's closer to what Cluster and cra- early Craftwork, early Tangerine Dream. Yeah, yeah. But again, there's just enough about it that seems like it comes from outside of that kind of world of slick West Coast musodom. Jazz again is complete. You know, I keep coming to this idea that I think somehow jazz in many ways was the persona non grata at the table in 1977 because it's the progressive rock bands that had absorbed jazz and adopted jazz tropes into their music. It was the sort of West Coast slickness which came from things like CTI jazz records. It was those records that suddenly sounded completely like they they were beaming in from another you know planet and yet the bands that had no, the artists that had no jazz influence at all the bowies the floyds the hawkins are the ones that seem to somehow be able to ride it out well i think it's a particular type of jazz isn't it because obviously floyd in some of the richard wright chord progressions you can hear some kind of 50s yeah, 60s jazz yeah I think it's the fusion. It's the return to forever weather report. Or even to a degree, even though it was their year, Steely Dan. But presumably, and again, I'm not a Steely Dan fanatic, presumably sold despite being incredibly unfashionable. I think Steely Dan always managed to get away with it, partly because of their lyrical bite and sophistication. And I think that they didn't have that kind of, as you put it, you know, as Miles Davis used to refer to it, the grinning motherfucker approach. (laughs) I love that. They managed to avoid that in some way. Right. They were a bit Um, sneery themselves. They were a bit sneery themselves, even though the music was immaculate and extraordinarily complex. Yeah, but but you are right. I think the bands that kind of rode it better were the ones who had almost ejected all of that from their vocabulary. Let's talk about the one one band from America that we haven't talked about. And I don't know a lot about this band, but they seem to be a band that that consistently crop up in in um, hipster circles at least as being massively influential influential at this time and interestingly a band that had no guitars i don't think correct me if i'm wrong which is suicide yes 
I've listened to Suicide. I don't particularly like it. To me, it's again, it's like 50s rock and roll played on synthesizers with a sort of punky attitude. So to me, it's the kind of rock and... It's the same reason I don't like the Ramones. It's the sort of rock and roll thing. I just can't... I just don't like rock and roll, folks. Sorry, my bad, I'm sure. Never like rock and roll. But I think you're more of a fan than I am. And I know Richard yeah. Barbieri is a, is a big fan as well. What what was Suicide doing? What was their place in this particular era? Well, daddy-o. see, I quite like some of the root rock and roll. I mean, I actually think some of the early 50s Sun recordings, you know, people like Presley, uh, Cash. I think those records sound great, sound exciting. And in fact, that's the thing as well, because I was quite familiar with some of those when I was younger. And actually, the new punk records, I could see how they were attempting to go back to this idea of one and a half minute to two and a half minute singles. But actually, if you listen to Gene Vincent, for me, there's more going on in a Gene Vincent single or a Buddy Holly single in terms of sort of composition, production. And I say even the early raw sun recordings for Presley, they're very, very interesting in the way that you know 50s miles davis recordings are interesting the way in which the mics are placed the, the studio harmonies. ambience yeah and it's before people yeah. kind of forget it's before you've actually really got what becomes the sound of rock and roll that you know people like scotty moore aren't doing that chug along boogie it's a lot more peculiar and interesting and johnny cash is something of a non-musician himself and is almost playing no notes but quite interesting rhythms on some of his recordings um, so I was always kind of slightly more drawn to that than you were. And yeah, I didn't like the Ramones, whereas Suicide, I did rather like, actually. I think there's something very fresh and very unusual. And they were using kind of, well, I, I'm about to say cutting edge synths. I guess when they started off in the early 70s, there just weren't very many bands who were just kind of synth oriented. And you're right, it was this kind of weird synth music that had an indeterminate length that was drawing from a rock and roll vocabulary. So it was the sound of the future and the past at the same time. And they weren't entirely defined by the Chuck Berry or the Gene Vincent or the Presley because they'd take these lyrics and they'd take them into kind of a darker taxi driver type place because it was very New York of the 70s. So there was a kind of psychopathic element. So it wasn't like, you know, if... Gene Vincent was in an institution with Edgar Froese. Right. You know? Yeah, I mean, I, I can see that. And I, I don't dislike it, but it just never quite appealed to me. It, I think it's the sort of d the direct pastiching of 50s rock and roll tropes. But then I say that and I love Mark Bolan. Yeah. And, you know, Mark T-Rex, you know, the big T-Rex singles were all basically pastiches. Eddie Cochran. Yeah. 50 rock and roll, 50s rock and roll songs. Uh, and Bowie also, you know, he was doing a fair bit of that too. So I don't know what it is. It's just, it's, it's just a bit of a blind spot I have, I guess, for for um, for for fifties rock and roll and things like Ramones and Suicide. There's not enough. There's not enough else there to sort of draw me in. I guess that there is. I say for me and Suicide and Partly as well. It's you know, it's the treatment of Vega's voice that he gets more and more demented mm. as a piece. You know, if you listen to things like Frankie Teardrop or whatever, it gets more and more demented. It goes on. The vocabulary is pure. Demented, I like, yeah. yeah. Rock and roll, yeah. pop song. But this is, in a way, kind of predicting what David Lynch did with rock and roll. You know, he took some of the rock and roll elements because both of us like Judy yes, Cruz. Yeah. And again, he used, in a sense, almost pure rock and roll ballad vocabulary, mm. but he invested that with a darkness, with an atmosphere. That's the bit I like. 
<laughs> and I think suicide sort of had yeah. that as well, I guess. Yeah. yeah, I guess so. True. Yeah. Um, I mean, interestingly, from my point of view, my favourite quote unquote punk record from this year, and it is a record that I think is one of the greatest records of all time, and certainly one of the most important records to me, is a punk record that has no guitar at all, virtually no guitar and no rock and roll tropes at all which is Throbbing Gristle's second annual report, which we will come on to yeah. later. So in a, in a sense, that's that's the punk record that redefines music for me. And and there's an argument to say that it's much more, re, much more uh, redefining musically than some of these records we've talked about, which was, a, as we've kind of pointed out, in a way, are kind of just old rock and roll tropes dressed up with a bit more yeah. archness. And it's sort and of a bit more speed. When I was thinking about this... Yeah, you know, obviously this is something we're going to come on to much, much later. But the albums that I discovered relatively soon after this period that really spoke to me and still speak to me are not necessarily of this year in spirit. That I'm kind of, it, For me, I say there's so much exciting music in so many genres, you know, which some of which we're going to come on to. But then the albums that perhaps I still really play with absolute adoration have nothing to do with the year but they are artists still at the top of their game but 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 then you say that but also you you would concede that there are some great records this year that come out completely by, yeah by, by artists that that are somehow by accident or by design somehow seem to be aligned with the punk ethic the punk, yeah. the punk aesthetic so the Bowie, the Ham, the Hawkwind, the Pink Floyd. Maybe, maybe it is more by luck than judgment, uh, with the exception of the Stranglers. It's certainly in the case of, of Peter Hamill and Hawkwind and Floyd. And maybe it is more by luck than judgment and Bowie that they, they seem to have arrived at a similar point at the, at the same time yeah. that somehow aligns them with what's going on despite them, which is this return to basics, angrier, more arch kind of approach to to popular music you know one of the great things of course we can do is we can look at history and kind of draw parallels that were never really there in the first yeah. place there's a lot of serendipity and a lot of happy accident going on here maybe in another alternate reality the sound of 1977 would have been the sound of of return to forever and brand x and not the sound conceivably uh, yeah, yeah of of pink but, floyd but then, as we said, there is an element of that being true, too, with the biggest records of the era being more kind of soft rock side. Yeah. But I think what, you know, distinguishes the artists we're talking about here, say, Neil Young, Pink Floyd, Hawkwind and The Ham, Van de Graaff, is that what I like about it, and Bowie, of course, you know, Bowie's the heroes and low, that these albums, not only they they kind of fresh statements, and we've said this before, they kind of echo the zeitgeist. But they are 100% genuine, curious, investigative albums that totally reflect the artists. Whereas, for me, some of the misfires are when you get the comedy punk, like Gentle Giant, I think, had a comedy punk mm. track. And it was a terrible misstep. Bet you thought we wouldn't do it. Bet you thought. And, you yeah. know, I really wish they hadn't because it was... It was a terrible pastiche of what was going on. And there were a few artists like that who, were, when when I think you attempt to embrace the zeitgeist and you don't really feel it mm. and you're not being true to yourself. It's the worst. It's, it's the, the worst, worst of both that, worlds. That's, that's when you get things like 
although I quite like it, but then you get things like Yes Tomato, which was a, you know... What gen- brilliant album. I is. love it too, <laughs> but generally, generally considered to be a misfire for the band. And things like the Gentle Giant record and the Love Beaches and things like that. It's It's not even... It's not even that some of those records are trying to be punk, although in the case of the Gentle Giant track you mentioned, of course it is. There's yeah. also a Steve Hillage track called 1988 Activated. Yeah, yeah. It's not even those tracks. It's that you kind of become aware that those bands are not quite sure what they should be doing anymore. Yeah. That punk has kind of pulled the rug out from underneath them. The, the music press becoming increasingly critical and just downright hostile towards people like Emerson, Lake and Palmer and Gentle Giant. They're not quite sure what they, who they are or what they should be doing anymore. And I think you're right. This year, that's yet to happen. Mm. That presumably albums like Animals and Going for the One, although we're not including the Floyd in this, in this category, but presumably let's look down the list here at some of the other progressive rock artists that made records this year. Going for the One by Yes, Jethro Tull's Songs from the Wood. Presumably this is before those bands have really felt, let's say they were still writing this material in 1976, 1975. Yeah. It's before they've really felt the impact of the new, the new order. And you're going to hear the impact of that on the next records they make. With some of them, you're right. With others, I think they just kind of waited until the moment. You know, I think bands like Genesis and Tull, really, punk doesn't kind of impact on them at all. Tull kind of rode it out, yeah. But it's when they hear the electronic revolution, the synth pop, the new romantic, mm. because I think they have an artistic affinity with it. You know, Jethro Tull do go synth pop to a degree. And and I think why it works is because he genuinely likes it. He genuinely thinks this is where the band can go. This is exciting me. Ditto, I think, you know, whatever one thinks of them, they're not my favourite records at all, but Genesis very, very effectively became an 80s pop band and an honest 80s pop band, and they succeeded. But they ignored that whole, you know, and then there were three as as far away from a punk ethic as you can get. But there are bands, aren't there, that definitely seemed to respond to... Oh, yeah, they're fine. ...the Year Zero... The Emerson, Lake and Palmers, for, for sure, not quite sure. The 10 CCs of this world, and we'll, we'll come on yeah. to talk about 10 CCs. Uh, two fantastic records came out this year from, from the 10 CC axis. Um, and again, I would suggest to, suggest to you the reason they are so good is because they were probably conceived and written before any of this sort of buzz about punk really started to make them question themselves. Yeah. So it was the following records that were the one. But there's an interesting thing as well. When I was listening to to Animals, actually, for this programme, I realised there's one influence. Somebody who should have been here in 77 and could have made it his own is John Lennon is a bit of a proto-punk in the sense if you listen to Plastic Ono Band and how stripped down that is, and that Mm. has a direct connection with the productions of the 50s And the raw singer-songwriter production is very stripped down and very angry. And you can hear, you know, Waters is a huge fan and you can hear the kind of yelps for desperation in Lennon's voice, in Waters' voice. And of course, Lennon rides this out completely. Out of all the Beatles, he's one where you can see that people could acknowledge him as a yeah, major influence. Yeah, but you see, uh, see, this is it. And it's interesting, the, the more we talk about this, the more you can think of precedence. McCartney's first solo album. 
Yes, yeah. Very DIY. So there's another precedent for someone that's kind of this this whole kind of back to basic. I mean, okay, we're not talking about the musical vocabulary. It's still very sophisticated songs. Yeah. and But there is a sense of going back to basic. Sly Stone, Sly and the Family Stone, yeah. Small Talk. There, there are lots of records that predate the whole thing, of the whole punk thing, where there seem to be, there seem to be this notion of the artist rejecting the excess of what went before. Yeah. I mean, it isn't let it be, you know. It is. And I think what's interesting is if you read the interviews from that kind of period, that I think people were responding. You know, psychedelia was one of those periods where it was a kind of upwardly mobile, aspirational, experimental era where everybody was using the technology of the day to find themselves in fresh sonic spaces and they were becoming more conceptually grand and you have a few bands and the Beatles one you could argue they started it on the White Album although go against it with Abbey Road um, that suddenly they think my god we've really strayed from the roots of what got us into music in the first place and so whether it's the band whether it's Dylan whether it's the Beatles you're right that impulse to strip things down to basics because you think you know, we've gone a bit too far here. That was around in the late 60s, early 70s, and there were quite a number of precedents. It was probably always there. I mean, uh, you know, so I don't think it's necessarily the whole punk thing is a new thing. And again, it's probably one of those things that was very much a media manufactured. Yeah. Or a, or a, Malcolm, a Malcolm McLaren who was the, the, the manager of the Pistols, a very Malcolm McLaren manufactured thing. And of course, Malcolm McLaren, the music he loved was, again, 50s rock and roll. Yeah, uh, He loved to dress like, you know, the Teddy Boys and his whole thing was rock and roll. And I guess his the whole punk thing, which coalesced around him and his store and his band, came about because he hated the sort of 70s prog rock, psychedelic rock, jazz rock thing. He wanted music to get back to basics, but probably never anticipated the longer term impact mm. that would have on everything from yeah. pop to hip hop music to, to electronic music. There is a punk kind of approach goes through, there's pretty much gone through all music ever since. And I think that's why we talk about this era as being so important at the end of the day is that it has had a long-term impact on popular music uh, that prevails to this day doesn't it yeah and uh, although at the moment i think we've not been an era that is so far away from the sounds of punk in terms of either the strip down or the anger and it is weird mm. you know because we do live in obviously i think the last seven years have been amongst the most divisive politically and the most seismic in terms of society. And of course, there is experimental music, there is angry music, but generally speaking, never has chart music been so anodyne and so much a replica of itself. You know, it seems to be in an ever rapid sense of feeding upon itself the whole pot will eat itself logic so that's kind of interesting you're right but there is a way that the punk kind of spirit has prevailed which is that you just don't hear muso you don't hear musos on pop music that is true you don't hear now maybe that's got nothing to do with punk that's got maybe there are other factors involved i think in it's that. more technology i think it's more uh, mm. in some ways as well convenience you know, I, I, I think I've said this before on the show that I think 
formats dictate art. So the introduction of the LP in the early 50s created the themed, sequenced album. Obviously, Frank Sinatra, Billie Holiday, um, lots of jazz artists made conceptually themed albums and played to the format. Rock bands took that even further. I think CD impacted very badly on music in the sense that we've got 80 minutes to fill, we're going to fill it. And I think streaming has impacted on music. So I think that what we're talking mm. about in terms of the lack of production finesse, in terms of the lack of choruses, the lack of chords, it's to do with the sheer immediacy of access of music and the format people access it via but what's interesting about the cd era it was almost encouraging people to be more excessive and more muso and to fill up songs you know make seven eight minute songs as you say yeah but we seem to have had a reaction against that in the era of streaming which is it, things have come back yes. to being very concise the vocal has to be in there right from the beginning of the song the vocal's got to be there Intro, fuck that. Mm -hmm. We don't want an intro. People are going to turn off. They're not going to sit through a 15-second drum intro. Vocal straight in. And in a way, that's a very punk thing, isn't it? It is. It is. But perhaps, I perhaps, perhaps I, no, I think you're coincidentally, right. Coincidentally. It's it entirely coincidentally. Yeah. Yeah. And you are right. You know, and this, again, is how formats influence art itself. You know, that we think of, say, one of 1975's best and best-selling albums and one of the first albums I ever bought and fell in love with wish you were here. This is an album that doesn't feel like it could exist in this era or be created now in some ways. Of course, there are artists who are playing to pockets of obsessives who are perhaps imitating the effects of those albums. But it's just, it's very far from where pop music's at now. You know, a piece that obviously has a, an almost silent, atmospheric five to ten minute intro before it even has the vocal. Mm. It is the antithesis of streamed pop music. But as I say, I think it is more to do, I think that punk ethic, it's not to do with people being aware of the history of punk. It's to do with what's there. Concentration spans, yeah. attention, sorry, attention spans, people being unable, unable to concentrate through anything that doesn't have an immediate melodic vocal hook. This is the way pop music seems to have gone, unfortunately. I, you know, I'm, I'm sad about that, but then I'm old and, and obviously I'm from a different generation. But I do miss the, in modern pop music, I miss... The solo, I miss the personality of musicians. I miss the beautifully crafted intro. Yeah. I miss the surprising tangential kind of shift that you would hear in a even a dire straits, you know, song. Yeah, yeah. That you simply don't hear in modern pop, which is all so. Uh, it sounds like it could have been written by an AI algorithm. Well, I think going on to AI, it's really fascinating that. Of course, you know, now people have this idea of let's hear John Lennon singing Bohemian Rhapsody. Let's, you know, all of these fusions. And what was interesting to me is that when they were doing AI versions, I think it was of Drake, partly because this music is auto-tuned to death anyway, and it's yeah. programmed and synthesised, people couldn't tell the difference. Yeah. And people were liking the AI yeah. Drake as much, if not more than Drake. And I think what's interesting is at the moment that contemporary pop music can be absolutely replicated by AI. Whereas actually, if you wanted to do Porn Hearts AI, we would notice the differences straight away. Give it time. Give it time, You Tim. might be right, yeah. Give it but a couple more years and you may be... You may be having to retract that statement. No, I, mean, I agree. God, I hope not. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, in some ways, I totally <laughs> agree with you. But there is so much human error 
in those, as well as complexity. So it's a combination mm. of complexity and human error that means these things are damn difficult to replicate. Whereas contemporary pop music, as we say, we could probably now go on and do an AI Drake. They'll be pretty damn good. And on that bombshell, I think we should we should conclude part one of 1977. Tim. We've kind of, we focused on in this part of 1977, really just talking about the whole, you know, punk. Yeah what kind of impacted US punk, UK punk have on music. So I think that's a nice kind of way, that's kind of nice self-contained episode there. Albums that we've talked about, I mean, we haven't sort of specifically focused on particular particular albums for any length of time no. here. But from for me personally, my favourite punk album from the year, punk in inverted commas, would be Wire's Pink Flag. Marky Moon's t- t- by television is a brilliant record yeah. that would go on to have a big impact on... The bands like Gang of Four, XTC, uh, later on. And you and I, we have a lot of love for these sort of progressive slash punk crossover records, don't we? I mean, Peter Hamill's over from this year. What a yeah, unbelievably yeah. fantastic confessional singer-songwriter gloom fest. That is. Indeed. And, and that was an album I completely fell in love with when I first heard it. And in some ways, you know, we talk about albums that were inspirational to us, that was for me because it was almost a permission to be as dark and as fucked up as I probably was. And musically, music. and musically again, it's on that kind of dividing line between sophisticated and unsophisticated, isn't it? The the playing is is not particularly hard. You know, it's not hard. It's it's Peter playing piano and guitar in his way, almost coming at it from a, again an outs- outsider, non musician approach. But it's sophisticated enough, isn't it? And so you could almost imagine yourself, I could do this. I could channel my own yeah. sort of, you know, thoughts about life through music like this, confessional music like this. It's an amazing record. I, I think one of my favourite records by The Ham. Ditto Animals for me, which is a top, Animals t- top three yeah. Floyd album for me. Yeah, Animals, I agree with you. It's in my top three Floyd albums and it's it's 100% the Floyd that emerged from the psychedelic maelstrom while being 100% a creative album made in 1977 it's a great achievement um and is certainly going to be in my top 5 of the year probably you know when we come to that point in I'm sure it'll be 2025 in, I'm sure it'll be in my top 5 too yeah and I just want to say that obviously that there are I think, I think as we touched on earlier, there's a few singles that came out by punk rock bands that for me actually define what I love about punk more than the albums do. So New Rose by The Damned, which was the first British punk single, um, and the Spiral Scratchy people. Spiral Scratchy, yeah. I agree. Uh, to me, in a way, that's that's kind of all I need from... And that and Pink, yeah, yeah. Pink Flag by Wire, maybe. But, but, but that Pink, tells you, it doesn't it? It's yeah. what you need. It's like, okay, yeah. that's what I've got. And, and weirdly, one of my favourite punk records of all time was 79, which was um, Babylon's Burning by The Ruts. Mm. I thought that was so intense. Mm. And um, it had a kind of relentlessness that I responded to. Well, and you have um, bands like Killing Joke. Yeah. Very, yes. Yeah. I think Killing Joke. And to an extent as well, I think when Shot by Both Sides yeah. came out, that had a similar nagging insistence. That was as close as a magazine ever got to classic punk. But this is kind of what I'm saying. It's, it's all, for us, I guess it's kind of starting to happen the following year, isn't it? What's kind of yeah. becoming interesting for us the following year. But for me this year, it would be the damn single, the Buzzcock single and the, and the Pink Flag by The Wire that for me are the defining... I genuinely love those as 
as signifiers of what punk stood for. I think that's a good point to stop at part one of 1977. We've still got so much to talk about, so we'll wind up part one there as a sort of thorough discussion of punk music, punk rock in 1977, and we will return in part two of 1970s. This is going to be a three-parter, I think, isn't it, Tim? It's got at be, least. At least. You were saying it could be a ten-parter. Well, I was thinking we're going to be doing this until 2025, 2026. What, just like 1977? Just 1977. So we're going to return in part two to talk about how had progressive rock, in its truest sense, fared in 1977. High vibration. It's going to be interesting. You love that record. I do. I love half that record. We're going to talk about that and more, folks, in part two. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. We'll see you again soon. Goodbye from me and goodbye from Tim. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.